Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, sexy people. How are you feeling? What have you been up to this week? Anything cool? Anything more exciting than me? I've had, I've gone, I've gone straight back to my natural habitat this past week after uh, my incident with the police. I've gone back straight into my natural habitat of being indoors, trying to stay warm, and just hacking away on the computer in my pajamas <laughs> in true rock and roll style. I mean, don't believe what you see in those Instagram posts. If anyone that follows me on Instagram or Facebook would genuinely believe that I spend all my time walking around in a leather jacket and boots, it's not true, man. It's not true. I spend probably 99% of my time in the house in the same hoodie <laughs> with a beard, just like like a fucking hermit, you know, pale, like a vampire. You know what I mean? Just scared of the daylight and doing everything I can to avoid other human beings. That, that's my general policy, I think. If the roads were empty and the streets were empty, you'd probably see a lot more of me outdoors. But, you know, there are several contributing factors as to why I spend most of my time indoors. And my recent experience with the police, you know, jumping me in my car, um, kind of proves why I'm better off staying inside. <laughs> but I get a lot of shit done in these four walls, man. It's been a very productive week in terms of um, making plans for next year for the band. You know, after such a long hiatus that we've had now with the two-year pandemic and also my family situation that I had uh, for most of this year has given us three years kind of in the pit stop, you know. So, um, yeah, I've been chatting to some awesome third parties who are going to hopefully be a part of us um, launch, relaunching ourselves back out there into what is hopefully going to be a much better year in 2023 after what has been an absolutely fucking challenging and awful 2022. So first, I'm going to get this Christmas thing out of the way. I'm going to do lots of relaxing. I'm going to do lots of trying to stay warm if I can. Um, maybe I have to remortgage the house, you know, so that I can afford to pay that gas bill to heat the fucking thing. But January, I'll be coming out of those gates swinging. You watch me. But first, we've got another awesome guest. And I'm so glad we managed to make this happen before the year is out. Because I think it's a perfect time to have an end of year reminder and summary of where we're at currently with some global issues that are of utmost importance to all of our lives moving forward. And also so that we can be armed with the knowledge that we need to collectively come out of the gate swinging in 2023 in order to take action on these pressing, urgent issues. And because I'm so good to you, ungrateful bastards, I've managed to get the one and only Mr. Charlie Chronic to come and speak with us. If you don't know, Charlie Chronic is a senior program advisor at Greenpeace UK. He has worked in the fields of environment and development as an activist, campaigner and writer for nearly 30 years. So he knows what he's talking about and we're super lucky to have him with us today to share his knowledge and time with us. Charlie, we appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for doing this, man. How are you doing this fine and cold morning? Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, I'm doing fine, I guess, in the context of the general shit show in which we are all inhabiting right now. Yes. Whenever anybody asks me how I'm doing, I think, should I? Should we ever tell people how we're really doing? <laughs> nah, let's not do that. Anyway, so I'm good and I'm happy to be here. So, so, so that's the fake answer. So I, that leads me perfectly into the, the what I, I think is probably going to hint towards the real answer, which is yeah. I wanted to kick off with where are we at currently with the climate emergency? I know that's a massive question, but what's the general status? I think, to be really absolutely blunt, we are hanging on by our fingernails, right? I, I think that there, the technical possibility of avoiding the worst impacts of climate change 
are still available to us. That means, you know, rapid decarbonization of, you know, our power system, of our uh, transport systems, the way we heat our homes, changes in diet, which are going to be both necessary and probably necessarily good for us as well. Less processed food, more local food, less yeah. meat and dairy. All of those things are possible to do to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. The real question is, will people do them? And will the institutions that set the framework for our behavior do them? And I think it's really important. This is, you know, what you do, what I do, what we do as communities is really crucial. But even if you total up all the individual decisions that people, particularly in the, in the global north, in the, in the minority world, make, those individual decisions, those that no matter how great your personal commitment is to doing the right thing, it won't be enough. We actually have to change the structure yes. of the country we live in. Now we do that all the time. You know, we have, you know, we've changed the way we use telecommunications. We've changed the way we use IT. We've changed the way we, we transport ourselves around and we move so much more. All of those changes are possible, but they're not down to single individual choices. And I think it's really important to get that on the table because yeah. very, it's, it's very easy for, you know, whether you're an oil company to say, well, our customers want to buy this stuff. Or if your government saying, well, this is what, you know, citizens want it's what they're offered and if you're offered a choice between something that's you know okay and something that's going to definitely make you miserable you're not going to go for miserable are you so i think you know there is there is a, an absolute political necessity that we make this central to the way we look at the way the world's going to be and um, that's a little bit uncomfortable because it's it's much easier to say well if i you know if i do my best it's going to be fine because it probably won't be well, that, that leads pretty much straight into the next thing that I wanted to ask you. I mean, I want to come on to um, what differences we can make on an individual basis on our, in our daily lives. But I think we should save that right until the end before we sort of establish the, the terrain here. Mm. Because it seems to me from previous conversations that I've had on the podcast is that, yeah, this comes down essentially to systemic change. Yeah. You know, unless we have systemic structural change from which needs to be, you know, signed off and sanctioned by, unfortunately, by the boys upstairs, yeah. you know, then nothing's And they gonna- are mostly boys, unfortunately still uh, exactly yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> um then very little is going to happen which is which is just the, the sad fact of it and as you said we are clinging on by our fingernails right now mm-hmm. um i mean i don't think anybody needs this spelling out for them at this stage but what are the main factors that are driving? what are the priority number ones that are driving this i'm talking i'm thinking about obviously you know fossil fuels agriculture i think is a big one mm-hmm. um which ties into the the, the way that we consume food and, and other things what are the what are the biggies that we really have to tackle Well, so the way you're absolutely right, the the combustion, the burning of fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas is the principal driver of climate change. It is the biggest it is the biggest single contributor. So that means the way we generate electricity, uh, the way we heat our homes and offices, buildings generally, but also the kind of heat um, that we use for industrial things like making steel, making glass, uh, making concrete. So. Energy and the use of energy and unfortunately the use of fossil fuels is embedded right into literally every single thing we do. Yeah. Uh, and we need to, and we need to get the carbon out of it or we need to get those activities out of our lives. And it is possible to do that with renewable electricity, uh, renewable heat. But the reality is we not only have to have better energy, we just have to use less energy. So some of that's technical and some of that's lifestyle, but 
basically that's at the heart of it. Then uh, what's in the business called land use change, but what everybody realizes is deforestation, uh, you know, the cutting down, not just of tropical rainforest, but also of the temperate rainforest in the far north of Europe, across Russia, uh, across Russia, the Scandinavian countries, Canada, uh, parts of North America where I'm from, uh, you know, we have to stop deforestation and, 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 uh, the, the dieback of forests in those places. And the thing that binds all of that together, you know, both fossil fuel use and energy use and deforestation is, of course, agriculture, because agriculture is energy intensive in the sense that it uses, um, fertilizers, which are made from fossil fuels. Uh, there is a lot of mechanization and a lot of transport of, of global commodities around. But the biggest problem is, of course, the intensification, uh, it's a terrible jargon word, isn't it? The, the you know the way we create industrial meat, the way we create industrial dairy, it's on a huge scale. Yeah. Um, it it clears enormous amounts of land. First of all, which is negative for the climate in and of itself. Yeah. Then grows crops which are then fed to um, animals either for meat production or dairy which is both inefficient in terms of the way we use the land it uses a lot of energy to produce a lot less calories for us Um, but also dairy and animals uh, produce methane they burp they fart they emit a methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas uh, like carbon dioxide and we don't have to make this a science lesson, but the reality is that the two big gases driving uh, global warming, global heating are carbon dioxide, which lives for a very long time in the atmosphere and has a pretty powerful effect. And methane, the stuff that comes from both natural gas, but also from burping and farting animals, uh, is um, a very powerful greenhouse gas. It doesn't last as long in the atmosphere, but its impact is huge. So if we are looking at this in terms of priorities, actually reducing the impact of industrial agriculture in the short term would have really big benefits, uh, as well as for, not just for the climate, but for our diet as well, yeah. I imagine. Um, so there are, you know, there, there are lots of things we can do, but those are the big, those are the big things. So just to recap, combustion of fossil fuels for electricity, heat, and transport. Deforestation, in other words, just removing the forest lands, which house and, and sequester huge amounts of carbon. And then finally, reforming our agriculture system, which means that we are not so dependent on intensively reared stuff, which uh, adds a huge amount of extra uh, warming to the atmosphere. Oh, that's brilliantly put, man. Yeah, that was a perfect encapsulation of the main issues we've got to deal with there. Um, and as you said as well, you know, all of these things, you know, will affect us on a personal health basis as well and quality of life basis. Not that that should be the motive, but I mean, a small change in, in someone's diet, for example, like I'm not suggesting we've all got to go like, you know, hardcore vegan overnight, but, but just going vegetarian two days a week, for example, yeah. would have a massive impact on the environment and the world's dependence on industrial agriculture agriculture you know which which in itself drives mm-hmm. deforestation and pollution and you know of course yeah. the cruelty to the animals as well but i'm just using that as an example to, uh, to highlight the fact that i think small changes done collectively and en masse you know can make a big difference and do have big knock-on effects you know i think a small change and i i think it's important to talk about what we do as individuals in the context of big in, in bigger change and, and i think that you know that's an important point making the right choice within a system in which there are right choices to be made you know is is it you know it's a it's a it's definitely a win-win and that doesn't just apply to your diet i mean um you know human powered transport walking riding a bike uh you know th- there are plenty of people and i think it's really important to note this there are lots of people in this you know in this country and all around the world who can't depend only on human power transport but they're 
there are lots who can, you know, walking to school, you know, walking to local shops, that's, you know, riding a bicycle, that, that is, again, good for your health as well as, as good for local air quality, um, and good for the climate. So there are definite, you know, win-win situations here. I think it's just we have to be really careful about not flipping it around so all the responsibility is on a single parent trying to get their kids to school yes. while then getting to work. Yeah. You know, of course that would, you know, that, that, that's not good for anybody. 100%. Yeah. And, and the thing for me that, that's a big source of guilt is waste. I mean, you know, we're very diligent in our household. You know, we recycle everything. You know, our bin bag goes out like, you know, once a fortnight and there's hardly anything in it. You know mm. what I mean? Because we're, we're so diligent with the recycling and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, um, but the, the, it's the food waste, man. It, it, it's like, because we are so dependent now on supermarkets. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. You know, if I, if I genuinely had the choice where I live to, 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 to hand pick all of my fruit and veg, you know, from a local trader, then goddamn, I would do it. But unfortunately, and given, you know, our lifestyles these days as well, you know, we have unfortunately, for the most part, I think, become dependent on supermarket chains, you know, especially if you're on a budget, you know. Mm. But the problem is, is that you can't just buy. <laughs> what you need you know if, if you're going to buy meat for example it comes in a massive giant box you know for a family of eight mm. and you know, for, for a household like ours you know we're just throwing most of it out as much as we hate to do it yeah. you know it feels quite unavoidable and it's a major source of guilt and waste and frustration because you know if you contact a food bank you know most of the time you know they they, they can't store food that needs refrigeration they can only store you know tinned and dried foods so yeah. just throw in tons of fruit and veg every week you know and it's because we're, we're, ha- we're forced to have to buy 10 times as much as we want yeah so you know what's the solution there because I, I think i feel like that taps into quite a few different problems doesn't it? it taps into the hegemony of the the major supermarket chains squashing and forcing out of the market you know the smaller independent local traders and also it taps into the waste issue and the nature of how we get our food and, and the whole supply chain of, of destruction that, uh, that, that feeds that. Well, now you're asking. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that there is a, there's a school of thought that you have to fix everything if you're going to fix anything, right? And, you know, what's the answer to the question you just asked? The answer probably is, you know, Corporate capitalism depends, and I'm using capitalism in quotes here, right? You know, corporate capitalism depends on economies of scale. It depends on huge, long supply chains, and it really, really benefits from um, a a mass-produced, mass-consumption approach. And mass, the clue's in the title. There is going to be waste in mass consumption and definitely in mass production. And... We don't just lose, you know, it's not just material waste. We lose our humanity. Everything becomes a transaction. Yes. Uh, every relationship is, becomes transactional. And I think that that, not to go all meta on you here, is an underlying problem yep. when you're, when we're trying to challenge this. Because, you know what, it is, I think the, the idea that economies can endlessly grow exponentially as opposed to people's well-being growing, which is, I think, a very different thing than the economy growing, yeah. is, is a tension that lies right at the heart of whether we're talking about food waste, energy waste, um, economies of scale and, and, and the global economy. And there's, you know, the easy answers to these questions, if they, if they ever existed, that ship sailed a long time ago. And, and I think we're going to be facing now 
a series of questions that, you know, I'm a campaigner. What we do here at Greenpeace is we try to make change happen. So what you do as a campaigner, I'm going to give away a few trade secrets here, is you set an objective. You know, what's the thing we want to happen? And then you work back from it. So, well, we want to, you know, overarching, we want to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, the catastrophic impacts of climate change. We also want to make sure that the impacts that we can't avoid aren't heaped totally unfairly on the least powerful. And that includes people who are facing economic health and other challenges, not just here in the UK, but globally. And right now, that is a disproportionately landing on people in the global south. So what used to be called developing countries. So people who've done the absolute least to create the problems we have around climate change, around biodiversity loss, you name it, are suffering the worst impacts of it. And part of our response the climate change is going to be how do we bake genuine justice, you know, or fairness, if you want to use a language that's a bit more personal, into the settlement. And, you know, and that is going to be hard. And it's going to mean that people in rich countries, even people who aren't rich in rich countries, are going to have to so I hate to use this expression. We're all going to have to suck it up. Yeah. And that if we're going to do, if we're going to, if this is going to be fair, and I think we all want this to be a fair solution to, to this problem, it's we're going to have to make some changes that we didn't expect. My parents, I'm an old guy. So my parents, uh, my dad served in the Second World War. My parents grew up in the Depression. Their assumption was that the world was going to get better and better and their children's lives were going to get easier yeah. and easier and everything with all oh, that rising tide would float all boats. And I know they genuinely believed that and they wanted that to be true. And that was the legacy they wanted to hand on. And I want to hand that on to my kids too. But yeah. you know what? I think that 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 window got a lot smaller. That opportunity for a better life for everybody is the definition of that has changed. And we really, really need to, as you know, this is a process. There's not going to be a single switch we flip that means, hey, this is all going to be grand. Right. It means that we're going to have to keep evaluating the changes we make. The faster we make them, the less awful they're going to be. The slower we make them, the harder it's going to get. So that's kind of, that's a very long answer to the question, what do you do about supermarkets? But I (laughs) I think it it does, you know, that's what it it comes, where it comes down. That's where the rubber hits the road for all of us here, particularly in a country like the UK, which for all the hardship that everybody is currently facing right now for a whole bunch of reasons, if you think it's bad here, it's a whole lot worse in places like sub-Saharan Africa, you know, rural Chile or Argentina. And I think, you know, we just can't solve this problem without acknowledging that it's a global one, not just a local one. Yeah, 100%. And as as you say, that is an answer to the question of what can we do about supermarkets, because everything is connected, isn't it? You know what I mean? On a global scale, everything has ramifications from the small to the large. And one thing that um, really confuses me, and I'm not sure what your thoughts might be on this, why is there given the everything you just said then about, you know, you want the best for your children and your grandchildren, as as everybody does? Why is there so much resistance to this from the elites who who are, for the most part, highly educated, highly intelligent, you know, a lot? of them and not you know mm-hmm. i suppose that's that's debatable well, how you define yeah. intelligence well ed- educated if not intelligent yes, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're aware of this and they know the part yeah. surely they know the part they play in this and and surely they feel the same way about their children and their grandchildren so why do they continue to force all of us um down the path of guaranteed mutual self-destruction I, that's a really important question and i think there's a number of different answers i think 
The first one is if you're, uh, so I spend a, a lot of my working life is dealing with financial um, institutions, you know, banks and the people who look after pension funds, asset managers, big insurance companies, people like that. And, you know, you meet a lot, I meet a lot of these people, you know, some of them are probably, you know, lords of darkness, but a lot of the people I meet are, you know, they are perfectly lovely people, frankly, you know, right. they're absolutely nice. And as you say, they care about their kids and they care about their kids' future. But everything about the rules that frame their day-to-day decision making at work are based on three-month periods of time. So their incentives, their remuneration, their bonuses are based on how well they do every three months. Right. You know, so quarterly. Um, they what they would consider a long-term decision making might be three to five years. Um, you combine that with, and they all say, oh, yes, we're in this for the long haul. Yeah, they are. But in terms of the things that make them drive their decision making, they have to make decisions based on very short time frames, which for better or worse, oddly corresponds with what's called the electoral cycle, you know, two years, four years, five years mm. in, a, in a democracy. Right. And, uh, yeah, democracy in quotes, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> however you choose to define that. Um, and it, it just means that the rules of the game and particularly the, the financial incentives do not favor uh, making decisions that are tough in the short term, but way better in the longer term. Right. So that's a generous way of looking at it. A less generous way of looking at why do elites, you know, hold on to the status quo as it's currently constituted is that people, you know, and again, as a, as a very privileged, you know, late middle-aged white dude, I am aware of the fact that people who have power don't want to give it up. Right. Even if you're not aware that you got it. You know, it feels like, oh, but this is, isn't this the way things are? You know, what, what we experience. And, and I think sometimes, sometimes it's malicious. Sometimes it's unconscious. Sometimes it's driven by the rules and the structures in which we operate. But it's a kind of perfect storm of inactivity. Hmm. And then layered on top of that, there has been some absolutely without question malevolent, you know, right. bad intentioned, malintent lobbying from particularly from the fossil fuel industries mm. and from some governments uh, that are totally petrostates that are totally dependent on fossil fuels, right. they don't want to speed this process up because the longer it they can you know squeeze the last drop financially and literally of oil or gas out of the ground, the better off they are, and that's that's the that's the reality. And you, you know, this year it was interesting that we just finished the big climate conference. It, it was in Sharm el Sheikh in Egypt, and this year there were six hundred. Uh, and 30, I believe, registered representatives of the fossil fuel industry there. They know which way the wind is blowing. They are not there to say, how can we help you speed up this transition? They are there to say, how can we make sure that our interests remain at the heart of this decision-making process for as long as possible? It's, it's simply the, a good future for the fossil fuel industry is not a good future for anybody else. And we've got, to, and, and that's true for, that's true if you're a banker, that's true if you're a member of parliament or congressman in the United States, or if you're a prime minister or president. But until decision makers, because I think a lot of people, real people have realized that if oil and gas do well, the rest of us do very badly. We're mm. really, we're noticing that this yeah. winter, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that that reality is becoming, you know, very, very easy to grasp for everybody who isn't in the fossil fuel business. 
I think it's insanity, and I think it might actually be a form of sociopathy. I mean, if, if you look yeah. at it on a global scale, it certainly would look like a manifestation of the one percent of sociopaths in society yeah. uh, have, have hoodwinked the the good folks that constitute the rest of us into um, giving giving them all the gold. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it looks as if the sociopaths are running are running the, the 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 train off the edge of the cliff. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you look at it on a global scale with with outside eyes it's madness yeah if you look at this any way but from a very particular point of view it's like this is going to make our lives a whole lot less comfortable it's going to make our lives a whole lot more expensive that's if you you have the choices about you know being able to spend or not spend um it's going to i mean it's going to impoverish the natural world in terms of you know the number of species the kind of it, you know the damage that climate change will do to the world we live in in physical terms is almost incomprehensible yeah. and you know it's tragic it is genuinely tragic no matter how you look at it so you know when you look at it in those terms you frame it up in those terms you think why would anybody why would anybody or any institution vote for, you know, maintaining this incredibly destructive pathway and trajectory on? And, you know, I think you, you laid it out. It is, you know, it is sociopathic behavior. Uh, at, that's a generous way of putting it, you know, psychopathic <laughs> if you want to be, you know, ungenerous. But, uh, you know, you know, spins back to where we started. Is it possible to avoid the worst, the worst impacts of the, the, the mess we're in? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Right. It, it just won't be easy. And we've left it unbelievably late uh and that's again that's you know but we as they say on the cop shows we are where we are um you know no there's no magic time machine to go back oh if we'd only done this 10 years ago or 15 years ago you know i've been doing this work for um uh, gosh i've been doing it for over 30 years now and you know you do think oh if only if only that had happened then you know we wouldn't be facing these challenges now but you know you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. It doesn't get you anywhere. You have to deal with the reality we face now. So what are we looking at in terms of a timeline then? I mean, if we don't change anything at all, if we stay on the trajectory that we're currently on exactly as we are, what are we looking at in terms of a timeline? Well, so if there's a, there are a lot of really smart people, much smarter than me, who've been looking at this. And if you look at the models uh, that, you know, that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is that big um UN convened body of scientists um has looked at that based on a huge I mean there are thousands, certainly hundreds of range of different possible outcomes in these scenarios. But putting all that to one side, if nothing changed after today, we're on track for about two and a half to three degrees warming by the end of this century. Wow. Now, just let's put that into context. The, 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 we have experienced already just over one degree of global average temperature rise since about 1860. And, um, I think we can say with, with confidence, not certainty, but with confidence that that one degree temperature rise has driven you know, the, the kind of flooding we're seeing around the world, the kind of uh, heat waves we're seeing around the world, some of the weird cold snaps sometimes you yeah. see where you get a sort of polar incursion because of weakening of the jet stream. Um, you know, it, there is no question that the warming we are already experiencing is, is creating pretty extreme outcomes. I mean, and if particularly again, if you're in a vulnerable community, you know, coastal city, you know, whether it's Miami, New York, or, you know, somewhere in Bangladesh, yeah. uh, you know, you are really, and we are really vulnerable to the, to those things. That is a third of the way of where we could be within the next 50 to 70 years. 
So it is sobering, it's scary, and we should take it very, very seriously. In terms of getting on track to avoid the worst impacts, basically, we need to reduce global emissions and end deforestation. Nothing to it, right? By 2030. End deforestation and have emissions. Okay. So cut emissions in half and end in, end deforestation. Ending deforestation is a possibility. That's a political decision and, and a commercial set of financial decisions. It's not easy, but it's definitely possible. I think we're getting very, very close. Where is it possible to reduce global carbon dioxide emissions by 50% or 45% in the next seven years? Technically, yeah. But it is really, really tight. Mm. And it's, you know, I think what we're looking at now is, and again, I'm going to use some jargon here, but hopefully can unpack this, which is the idea of overshoot. So in other words, global average temperature goes up beyond 1.5 degrees of that, you know, pre-industrial average. And then over time, we bring it back down. And the question is, how much time? Do we allow it to overshoot? I think uh, avoiding any overshoot is going to be tough, not impossible, but very, very difficult. But let me just, and I think the other thing I would say before trying to answer another really depressing question uh, is that every tenth of a degree is worth fighting for. You know, every tenth of a degree beyond one degree where we already are is going to make the world worse for somebody for sure and probably for everybody. And so I'm not saying that And Greenpeace is definitely not saying that 1.5 isn't possible. I'm just saying because it's hard and because it's getting harder doesn't mean that you have to give up. Now, I know I sound like a football coach or something. This isn't about a pep pep talk. I am relentlessly realistic. And I don't think you could do this work without being relentlessly realistic. But I think that, you know, we just have to, if, if we want to avoid the worst impacts, you never, ever give up on the toughest target. It just means that every day that goes by gets a little harder. Well, we don't have a choice, do we? You know, no, no, give, we don't. Not being hopeful and giving up and sit on our hands and hoping for the best is is not a choice. You know, we have to no. we have to find hope and morale in any any way that we can to to, yeah. you know, to keep it moving. Um, yeah. What role does uh, population rise play in this? Does it does it make a difference, or does it matter on the lifestyles that those populations are living under? Ah, oh, well, now there you've you've answered the question right there. Right. I mean, the numbers. Uh, there, I'm going to take a step back from that because I think you have highlighted the fact it's not how many people you've got, it's what the people we have, right. how they live. Um, I think back at, way back in the day, sort of late 60s, early 70s, there was a guy called Paul Ehrlich who um, he, he, he wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And I remember hearing him speak when I was in school and it was scary as hell. And you're thinking, oh my God, every, you know, and you kind of, it leads you to this sort of, you know, kind of uh, People's Republic of China, you know, one child policy kind of right. approach. And it's all right. about the numbers. And the reason that happened was that, you know, and he was not a, you know, not a bad man, but he carried over uh, this idea of carrying capacity from sort of population biology, looking at a square meter or a hectare, you know, acre of land and say, this is how much life you can sustain on this. Right. But that's a natural closed system. We are making decisions all the time about the way we generate our energy, about the way we grow our food, about the way we move around the planet, about the things we eat. All of those variables determine. And, you know, let's be absolutely honest about this, that the impact of, uh, 
you know, me, when I was growing up, I was born in Minnesota, you know, is probably eight, nine times, 10 times what a child born in South Saharan Africa in the same year, yep. 1955, as I was born. So no, it's not about the numbers. It's about the lives that those populations lead, uh, the, the, the way, what we consume, the way we consume, the amount we consume. So, um, yeah, it, I, I, I find it sad and not just, you know, it's more than a little bit xenophobic and you know verging on racist when people say but it's all about numbers because you know where they're talking about numbers is 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 places in the global south where people are brown or black and that's uncomfortable and they may not mean that and it's worth digging into it and you have to have i think patient and respectful conversations not to say that's bollocks um <laughs> but it is bollocks uh but there are reason there are reasons why it's bollocks and they need to be unpacked Brilliant answer, brilliant answer. Well, this, the second myth that I wanted to unpack before we uh, rapidly move on to some solutions, because I could I could throw all the, these questions at you all day, but we need to get onto the onto the happy news. But one thing, yeah. obviously, speaking about you know Western lifestyles again and, and the guilt that we all feel on a daily basis yeah. is recycling. I, I mean, yeah. what's the deal with recycling? Um, are we wasting our time? Because uh, as far as I can tell, it's either ending up you know, in the sea or in Hong Kong, mm. you know, is yeah. any of this stuff getting recycled? Turkey actually is Turkey. where most of our, the UK waste goes. Right. Um, recycling. It's a great concept, isn't it? Um, recycling is, and I'm, I'm going to put my hand up here. I am not an expert on plastics. Okay. The simple answer is, recycling doesn't do anything to solve the problems of climate change. So yeah. you can, if you, if you recycle everything in your house, Fine. If it's genuinely recycled, that's a good thing. It's not going to be the thing that that um, means that you're moving your own individual lives. And I know we are moving towards decision making in that space uh, towards it. And I think the biggest problem is that recycling has become a huge scam. And the difference between is between recycling and recyclable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we make very, very complex products, usually of uh, uh, very, very, uh, complicated sets of materials. I mean, just take a modern car. You know, I, I know that, um, for example, it's, it's a particular, I think it was Volkswagen and, and, and Volvo, but this is not neither an endorsement nor criticism, made commitments to make the, you know, the components of their cars recyclable. But, you know, I don't know if, if, if you drive a car, but have you ever tried to recycle a car? <laughs> it would be, you know, you can't do it. And, and I think that, you know, uh, you, you get a, you get a tray, a plastic tray from the supermarket that's got one of those triangles and a number mm. on the bottom. And you assume that means, oh, well, that says it's recyclable. Well, first of all, if it's black, the optical sensors won't pick it up. So it just flows right through the recycling and into the landfill. Second of all, if it's um, a particular compound that your local authority doesn't have a contract with a recycling company to recycle that particular plastic compound, it ends up in landfill. There are just so many variables. uh, and, And I think that as a concept and as a solution, it's been massively oversold. And of course, then you just end up with the problem of it all ending up in a container and going to Turkey or Vietnam or, 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 or a country where people are willing to deal with our crap. And I, I, I think that, you know, last week, the, the world's first plastic treaty negotiations, uh, global plastic treaty negotiations, said it. unfortunately, it looks just like exactly like every other kind of global treaty. Industry shows up in force and explains why they can't do the thing that we need to do. Um, you know what? We just need to have less shit. Yeah, I think that, right. you know, that that that's what it comes right. down to. One hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. I think underpinning a lot of what I'm hearing today, I think, is a shift in values. 
you know what are yeah. our values essentially as a society you mentioned on the sense of transactional uh, yeah. relationships earlier i think that is a lot to do with the capitalistic materialistic mindset as well yeah. that's become pervasive now and how we interact with ourselves and each other i think yeah. under, underpinning a lot of this is a change in values but they're quite lofty ideals for the time yeah. frame that we're talking about so i want to move quickly on them because i'm look i'm, I'm staring sideways at the clock here because i know i've got to leave you soon we're good we're good um, okay we're cool good for time this is this is great stuff but what i want to try to like um move towards the solutions and alternatives if possible sure. um so in terms of uh moving moving away from uh, necessarily like abstract notions like value systems and stuff what, yeah, are the, yeah. what are the actual tangible alternatives to some of the big major problems that we've got well, okay. So, you know, we were talking earlier about what are the biggest contributors to, to global climate change and, and disruption of the climate. And the way we generate power and electricity uh, and heat is, you know, it's the biggest, still the biggest single one. I, you know, there, there are different ways to count it up, but it's still the biggest one. There are right now, um, without question, the technical, the widgets are out there to turn our electricity system into a zero carbon system. And the UK actually, you know, has a recommendation that the UK should be totally zero carbon in our electricity uh, production by 2030. And there's no reason we can't do it. That exists now. That, that's our, that is the recommendation of the Committee on Climate Change to the government. I think the government's plan is 2035, but the wow. recommendation is that we, so yeah, it's absolutely, not only is it possible, it's written in law and we should, you know, we absolutely should wow. be doing it. Look at what's going on in the, in, you know, obviously that in, we're in the middle of a, catastrophic and absolutely tragic and totally avoidable war yeah. on mainland Europe for the first time in, you know, since the forties. Um, that's even older than me. Um, and what that has done besides drive the, the price of gas through the roof, um, is that it's made, I think, decision makers realize that if you're dependent on gas, it doesn't matter where you get your gas. You're always going to be dependent on that commodity right. in the market. And I yeah. think there is every likelihood uh, for all the worst reasons you could possibly imagine that the move away from the use of gas, both for generating electricity and uh, for heating homes and industrial use of gas, is going to be massively accelerated by the totally unjustifiable war in the Ukraine. Mm. Um, that's not to say that that's not a silver lining. That's not making the, you know, that's not a crisisunity. It's absolutely tragic right. but it's it it has sharpened the minds of decision makers so decarbonizing our sorry that's such a terrible word decarbonizing <laughs> getting the fossil fuels out of our electricity system out of our heating systems out of the industry is something we can do that we can do almost particularly in europe we can do almost entirely by the by the end of this decade and what is that solar wind or a combination solar of wind tidal and using less energy you know so right. the first thing you have to do is stop you know heating the great outdoors through absolutely the worst building you know standards that exist in europe right. in the uk yeah. uh you know and so that's the that's the first thing is you stop wasting energy and then use solar wind um which are the cheapest ways the cheapest not compared to you know um a brand new power station you could shut down a gas fired power station replace it with solar and wind and it would be cheaper than keeping the gas going, particularly now. So, you know, that's, that's, it's absolutely doable. Um, it means electrifying our vehicle system. In other words, you know, there are going to be more electric cars out there, uh, which isn't to say electric cars solve all the problems. You get killed just as dead by being run over by an electric right. car, uh, as you do by a petrol car. And if a community is carved up by roads and dependence on cars, 
you know, electric cars don't make that any better. They do improve the local air quality, but let's, you know, we have to be honest about this. Also attached to the reality of electric cars and renewable energies are batteries. Hmm. And that means things like lithium right. and rare earths, which are right now being mined in, mostly in places like Chile or in yep. the Congo. And I think what we absolutely have to be super mindful of is that we cannot replace an economy that was based on, on screwing uh, the global south and yep. taking the oil out of the ground by screwing the global south and taking rare earths out of the ground. Yep. And it's, you know, the, things are going to cost more, things are going to get harder. But it's possible to do. And I, I don't want to keep coming back to how hard it is. All of these things are doable now. Um, it's just that we've gotten very used to being told the easiest way to do it is the way we're doing it right now. So it, there's no dispute. The, the solutions and the alternatives are there. They're ready to go. That's, that's done. We've done that bit. Yeah, that it, technically 100%. Again, another situation, offshore wind. We can generate so much wind. You know, we're an island surrounded by windy seas. Yeah. You know, people say, oh, but what happens if the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine? The wind always blows somewhere in the UK. So what you need, and the sun shines somewhere in the UK most days. So what you need then, uh, and again, this is, it's technical, but it's, it's the reality is you need a grid. We need a grid that moves electricity from where it's generated to where it's used. That, you know, that if, for example, if you've got an electric car, you plug it in overnight and it stores a huge amount of electricity that would be used when the wind's blowing overnight. So, you know, again, this is, this is about being intentional. It's about being smart and it's, and it's about allocating resources, but it also means change and, uh, grid connection very, very boring subject, is the thing that is slowing down big banks and big pension firms are saying, oh, I'm going to put a ton of money into offshore wind, for example, because if you can't connect those wind farms to the ground, if you can't use that electricity in the grid, that's not an investment. It's just a mechano set out in the sea. Right, right. So, you know, I, I think that this is where it comes to politics. And, I, you, you know, often people say to me, to us well what can you do you can vote for people who will make the who will change the rules in the right way now we are not party political i work for greenpeace we're not a party political shop but right now the cheapest way to generate electricity in the uk is to build onshore wind farms right there the government the party in power has for reasons best known to themselves a de facto ban on onshore wind what a surprise yeah you know Judge, however, you know, draw whatever conclusion you like from that, uh, whatever their motivation is, you've got to vote for people who are not going to ban the things that solve the problem. Simple as that. Madness. Yeah. And that is the first step in, in, in making a difference personally, it seems to me, right. is that we acknowledge that our responsibility in this regard, you know, it doesn't rely just on what we eat or how we get around, but the choices we make politically. Can't get away from it. Small p politics, but everything's political. The personal is political. Well, to hear you saying that as somebody that's been in the game for 30 years, you know, if that's your analysis after being deep in this for, for as long as you have, yeah. then, then we know what we've got to do. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. It's tough. And there are, you know, and politics means trade off. You know, I think that one of the things that, again, I, I haven't been doing this for a long time for me, are we making, are we making the perfect the enemy the good? I'm not talking about compromise here. I'm talking about better. I don't want the best right. thing in the world. I want the best thing in the world for my family, you know, if I'm honest, for myself, for my kids, my community. But you know what? I'd take better. I'd take better before I would wait for best. 
And and I think that right, as long right. as you not as long as we're not shutting down options by making you know decisions that are going to make the world a better place now, then that is a huge part of our personal responsibility. Then when you come to things like diet, when you come to things like personal transport choices, right. um, you know be, right. you know here's here's a tough one for everybody, right? That aviation uh, is a relatively small. Part, you know, flying. It's a relatively small part of the global economy. It's the fastest growing contributor of fossil fuels to um, to climate change. And the reality is, if you want to go visit your family, I'm American and I've lived in the UK for over 30 years. If I want to go visit my family, I'm, you know, I can paddle. Uh, I can get on the container ship. It's hard, not impossible, or I fly. But the reality is, if you fly, you know, the people who fly the most are people who fly three, four, five times a year. It's not one, it's not the family taking one holiday a year. It's multiple right, flyers. Right. So how do you respond to that? Frequent flyer level. You tax the people who fly the most and you recycle right. that income. It's a, you know, that is, a, again, it's a political decision. Now, is it going to, you know, will that make your flight, my flight for one holiday every three years more expensive? Probably. But will it really extract value from the people who fly four or five, six times a year? Absolutely. And it definitely should. So I, I think right. that, again, these are kind of, you know, we're making decisions, fly less. Okay. Absolutely. Maybe not fly at all. Okay. That's your choice. But for the people who are going to, um, you, you know, who are not making those choices, you know, make sure they pay and that, 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 that the benefits that they're getting are, are distributed much more fairly. So there are ways to address these issues, um, you know, and I think that you'll net, we're, we're not, we're unlikely, I can't say never, we're unlikely to reduce love miles, you know, the, the miles that people travel to, uh, uh, you know, visit their family and, and, and relatives. That, that's, that's a reality that I live with and I'm prepared to live with. But you know what? I think the people who fly six, seven, eight times a year, you know, I think they're going to have to pay for it. We have to remember that the uh, the elite that we mentioned earlier, the one percent, is they're flying in their private planes all the time. Well, they don't, they, they're not using the bus. You yeah, know? I think that you know. Again, I don't think this is a radical suggestion. Uh, private aviation, uh, certainly private jets, are uh, in it. You know, it's a very, very uh, poor use of resources. Let's put it that way. To be the most generous, right. and right. you know, these are decisions that um, you know, if you're a diehard libertarian, I mean, I. I I don't agree with people who are diehard libertarians, but, you know, they're entitled to their opinion. Um, but if you're, you know, and they would say, I don't want you to restrict my freedom. And I guess my response to that would be, or our response to that would be, well, your freedom is, your freedom is definitely impinging, uh, on other people's freedoms, like freedom to, you know, right. to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And, you know, the reality is, um, you know, you're getting this, it's a free ride. You, you know, the, the, that one percent, as you described them, are, are getting a huge free ride from the, you know, the ninety-nine percent who are shouldering the worst impacts. So these things have to be yeah. evened out, um, and that's, you know, and if we don't do that, why would a country like India? And I'm now taking this to the national and away from the personal, you know, but why would a country like India or China, which still, even though they're huge global economies, and with per capita emissions much lower than the West, why would they change? Because they'd say, we yeah. don't see any, you know, we don't see goodwill. Now, you know, right. goodwill is in short supply globally at the minute, but, you know, without right. at least a, an intention, we're not going to get there. Well, the message I'm getting here is, is that, yeah, it's all very well, you know, cleaning our yogurt pots and recycling our cans and all that sort of stuff, which we should be doing anyway, because, you know, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. But the real change that we need is going to come through politics. Yeah. It's going to come from policy change and regulation. And that's only going to happen when we elect 
a party yeah. into power that is actually going to enact the changes that we need, which <laughs> we are far from that at the moment. Absolutely. And I think that, that it is... It sounds very distant from our from our personal lives, and I think you know. The, and and obviously, politics has been. <sighs> I don't even know where to start. You know, the, the last few years, politics in the in in the UK and in the US. You know, the two places I know the best, and, but you know, lots of Europe as well are they are toxic and they are full of they're full of hate and they're full of uh, and 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 they're full of selfishness and they are based on division not on unity they're based on you know beggar thy neighbor not you know love thy neighbor to you know maybe be a little too gushy about it and it has been a you know it's really difficult to get people to feel 100% positive about politics right now i guess the thing again the thing yeah. i would say is that personal behavior personal choices personal sacrifice it's motiv- it's motivational, but it also it informs the context in which we make all all of our decisions. So you know, I, I think that what's really important is to emphasize we're not. I'm certainly not advocating that we wait for those people upstairs, the boys upstairs, to sort this shit out. I think is that we show you know that that individual and community based behavior shows what we're willing to do and what we're willing to accept and then we have to exercise the leverage that we still have in terms of our you know voting and 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 institutional politics right. to make, to show that that goodwill can be turned into something real and it's a it, you know it's it's an it's going to say it's a, it's a it's a repetitive ongoing process you know this doesn't it's not it's not a binary thing where we're going to flip a switch and the world's going to be grand or we fail to flip a switch and the world's going to be buggered it's you know it's every day every way we've got it you know this is an iterative process and it seems so boring and it makes life so hard you know because it's like the, no problem is ever fixed but if you don't start you're never you're not on the way to fixing it so it's a you know it's it's challenging and i and i think that there was, you know, the the idea of you know the old badge that people you know that people used to wear in the, in the seventies, you know, uh, you know, think global and act local. It, it's true, right. you know. I mean, yeah. there there is, you know, things become cliches and 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 aphorisms because there is an element of truth in For a reason, yeah. yeah. And and I think that's you know that it's just it's just as real now. Unfortunately, you know, the change that we want to see, the change we want to be, it's it's tougher. There's no, there's no getting around it, right. But I guess the thing that encourages me, and I, I was—I usually hold up my, you know, mobile phone at this point, but I left it on my desk so nobody would ring us while we were having this conversation. Uh, <laughs> is the, you know the transformation in people's habits and expectations around technology? They would be unrecognizable. I mean, I well, iPhone was first iPhones two thousand three. I think I got my first mobile. I got a mobile, you know, after my kids were born. You know, I was. I'm, quite glad about that actually um that's another podcast probably um but i you know the transformation that has come from telecommunications and handheld technology is absolutely astonishing and it's happened in less than a generation it is possible to make social and technical change very fast i think one of the things that we've realized is you can make technical and social change very fast and it's not necessarily good so we've got an opportunity to you know to, right. to deliver some better outcomes you know using technology knowingly intelligently and also acknowledging that it doesn't solve the problem it's how you use it that solves the problem 100 you know, whether it's solar wind electric cars energy efficiency heat pumps you know you can pick your bit of kit that will save the world the way we use it is the thing that is going to determine whether the world gets saved and 
when I first started doing this about whenever 30 years ago, I think there was a belief that, you know, that the green future was, you know, was going to be amazing. It was all going to be community based wind farms and food co-ops and, you know, yogurt weaving, you know, sandal wearing hippies. <laughs> You know, there's a, you know, now some people would say that, that wouldn't be a good outcome. So let's just put that out <laughs> yeah, there. It's debatable. <laughs> but there is a very, you know, there's, it's just as possible that a very small number of people and institutions could, could, could control a, you know, zero carbon, zero deforestation, uh, you know, food supply and energy system wouldn't make, necessarily make the world a better place. It wouldn't mean that we don't fry the climate, but there could be right. a lot of, you know, you know, anti-democratic, repressive, right. you know, anti-human rights, you know, repercussions of, of a technologically acceptable future. So I guess that, you know, you know, is, I think I never said this was going to be easy, but we've got to balance up. How do you, how do we keep this human and humane at the same time as avoiding the worst impacts? So I'm never going to run out of work. <laughs> well i hope one day you do you know and i hope it's, yeah. you know it's in the next few decades because otherwise we're toast um, yeah in terms of then of um influencing our representatives I, i've had a few on the the podcast i have a lot of activists in the podcast and they mm -hmm. all say you know at the end of it they say the most important thing you could do uh, in that area is to lobby your mp write to your mp yeah. find out where they stand on this issue let them know how you feel about it and yeah. and you know obviously you know hit, hit them with your vote but where do you stand on civil disobedience and direct action and activist groups, specifically groups such as Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil? It seems to me that there's a kind of um, an alignment there with the cause that Greenpeace has been a champion of for so long. Well, we, we've been advocates and, and doing nonviolent direct action for you know, decades. That's how I started doing this work as a, as a physical activist, as a, as, a, as a Greenpeace boat driver and member of our actions team. and. I still go out, uh, old fool that I am. I, I think direct action in and of itself won't solve the problem. I think that direct action, you know, and I, I say that not because I don't believe in it. I 100% believe in it. I, but I think it has to be in the context of that we're after change. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, I listened like everybody else to the, you know, to the interviews with, you know, the, the young, particularly the young woman who was, you know, blocked the M25 few, uh, motorway here in the UK. If anybody's listening internationally, uh, you know, a, a few weeks ago and she, without question, inconvenienced people. You know, somebody didn't make it to their father's funeral. Somebody right. probably didn't make it to a wedding. And that is terrible. From her point of view, the loss of 30% of the world's biodiversity, the loss of her sense of a, you know, a viable future for herself and her children as a young person. I think that's pretty tragic as well. And yeah. I think that the, what direct action does is it creates space for change to happen. And, you know, if ever we needed to be clear that this is urgent and that we have to clear huge amounts of space for, um, for, you know, for change faster than anybody wants it. That's that's a reality we're going to have to live with. And I know that people will. I think the main thing I would say about particularly, you know, the, what you're sitting in your car stuck in a motorway uh, traffic jam as a result of direct action, you're, you know, it's like this isn't about you as that person. You, you're, that reality of you being inconvenienced is it's definitely your reality. But the person on the gantry, the person blocking that road, they're not they're not doing it because they don't want you to get where you need to go. Yeah. They are doing it because they believe that we need a fundamental overwhelming and very very big change in a very very short period of time and 
they're not blaming you for that, but they and but we are all part of the if we're going to all be part of the the solution, unfortunately, right now we're all part of the problem. And um, I, I think it's you know we are it comes back to the fact that we are going to be facing really difficult challenges. This isn't going to be comfortable for anybody, uh, and that that's you know that we're you know we're we're all involved in this, and that's why the politics matters. The direct action makes the political space available, um, and it will make people uncomfortable, uh, but. And will lead to some very uncomfortable decisions and discussions. But I, without it, I think that, you know, the world isn't going to change. 100%. So as we wrap up, then what can we leave people with that they can actually go and do? Okay. It's just, you know, in a simple list is you vote for the people who are going to make change happen. You let your, whether it's your local council, your MP, or, you know, the, the people from whom you buy things, know that you want the change to happen and that you're willing to play your part in it. Of course, you make personal decisions about uh, personal transport or, you know, the food you eat. Um, but ultimately, it's about, and in the UK, I'm going to give a very specific example because we're based in the UK. It's a small country you know, 60, nearly 70 million people now. Um, but we're one of the biggest economies in the world. We're still in the, you know, the top seven or eight economies in the world. If we can change, anybody can change. So don't let anybody say, oh, but what about China? What about India? What about us? You know, uh, and, and, you know, we have to take responsibility for what we can change and not blame other people for what they may or may not be doing. Amen. Charlie Chronic, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for this, man. This has been a brilliant chat and I really do appreciate you taking time out to uh, to come speak with us today. Thanks for everything you've done as well for the past 30 years on this issue and I know you'll continue to do so. We appreciate you, man, and hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. Yeah, no, I'd, 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 you know, we don't get the chance to talk to people for an hour very often and, you know, the world gets cut down into 30-second soundbites. So yeah. if there is, uh, if and that's a long one. Uh, so, you know, if we, I'd love to do it again. And it would, what would really be interesting is to reflect on is change happening yet? If it right. isn't, what do we need to do now? If it is, how do we speed it up? So yeah, looking forward to it. Maybe we'll do it this time again next year and see how we've been getting on. It's a good time. All right. Then. Thank you again. Thanks Thanks it's great much. to meet you, man. I appreciate it. You too. Great pleasure. Charlie Chronic, ladies and gentlemen, cool name, cool guy. What do you think of that? Charlie dropped some really good points and some great knowledge in that conversation, man, from some angles that I hadn't really considered before. And it is difficult when you're talking about this issue because, you know, I've had several episodes now on the podcast where we're talking about this issue with whether it's with Extinction Rebellion or the Green Party. I try not to ask the same questions and, and share the same information, but it is difficult because, you know, the case is kind of closed on this issue now. You know, we know the science, we know the truth, we know the impending disaster, and we know the road ahead to action and change. So it's a case of urgently getting on with it now. But that said, you know, Charlie still gave some perspectives on some things which I hadn't considered, which I found really refreshing and interesting. And I just like his whole vibe as well, you know, the way he explained things, made it very easy to understand and digest. And he made a lot of good points about the relationship between the first world and the third, you know, recycling, activism, and clearly laying out what the alternatives are that already exist. So I think if you're looking for a one-hour snapshot of the climate change issue and some surrounding issues that feed into it, I think that little hour there with, with Charlie covers the whole range. So if you're new to this issue or you want to kind of um, introduce your friends or your family to this issue, you know, 
please share that conversation with him because I think Charlie lays out the case there. He puts all the science and the timelines and everything in, explains what's causing this and what the solutions are and how we get those solutions. So I think, you know, you could either go and read an 800-page book on it or you can just listen to that one-hour chat with the awesomely named Mr. Charlie Chronic and give yourself a, a, a full debriefing on the climate change issue and the road to recovery. I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it interesting and informative. If you did, subscribe to the goddamn channel. I'm going to ask you again. Give me a follow. Give me a star rating. Give me a review. Give me a thumbs up. Give me something, goddammit. And spread the word. Because, man, we have got some beasts coming up in the new year. So as long as you guys are interested, I'll keep having these conversations and feeding them into your earlobes. So show me some love. Let me know, you know, that you're interested. Let me know that you care and appreciate it. And I'll, uh, I'll reciprocate in kind. Got a special one for you guys next week. So stick around for that one for what will more than likely be the last one for 2022. And in the meantime, look after yourselves, be awesome and do awesome. And I shall catch you next week. Love you loads. Bye-bye.